As a church, we've been studying the book of Ephesians, and we will, Lord willing, finish that series next week. But this week, we're going to take a look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, which if you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 763, because we're going to start at verse 23. About 15 years ago, I met a first-year undergraduate student who thought very highly of himself in one particular area of his life. I don't know if anyone still plays Halo in the Xbox. Is that still a thing? I should know this. But this guy claimed to be the best player of Halo in his generation. It appeared to me that he just wanted to impress people with his big talk. So one weekend I saw that the student activities committee had decided to host a Halo team tournament on campus with cash prizes. And I dared him to enter. I asked him if he planned to enter the tournament. His response? Only if I can find a partner who's half as good as I am. I'd like to say I was kind and gentle toward his hubris, but honestly, I couldn't wait to see him get knocked back down to earth. He did end up entering the tournament, and he ended up winning first prize. Big time. It was quite clear to those who participated that the real competition was only for who would get second place after this guy and his partner. And looking back, I realized he had never spoken of his halo skills in an empty way as if only to impress. He was simply speaking the truth about how skilled he was. And that tournament actually and finally gave him the street cred to back up his words as honest fact. Now, even more dramatically, at the heart of the Christian faith stands a man who claims to forgive sins. And we ought to ask ourselves the question, can he really do that? Or is he simply delusional? Because if he can't do it, we're all just wasting our time by coming to church. But if he can do it, that means your life and my life can never be the same once we have crossed his path. His name is Jesus... And how do we know Jesus can forgive sins? That is the question our passage this morning sets out to answer for us. And the answer this text has for us will be rather straightforward. You see, this passage teaches that if Jesus has all authority, then he can forgive sins. That's the main idea this morning. If Jesus has all authority, he can forgive sins. 
Now, this might sound like no big deal, but that's only because you might not yet realize what it means to be in the presence of someone who has all authority. So buckle up, because that's where we're going this morning. Our passage in Matthew tells three brief stories about Jesus. I'll read them one at a time so we can see how the narrator builds his case as he goes so that you and I can know that this man can forgive sins. In the first episode, verses 23 through 27, we see that the natural world obeys him. The natural world obeys him. Matthew 8, starting at verse 23. And when he, that is Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Here in verse 23, Jesus' disciples follow him into a boat. And by the time a great storm hits, Jesus is tuckered out enough to have fallen fast asleep. As wave after wave begins to swamp the boat, these disciples freak out. And this is all the more remarkable if you realize that at least four of these men were deep sea fishermen by trade. They know this sea. They know how to handle storms. And they know that this storm is not one that they can handle. So they wake Jesus up to tell him that they're all going to die real soon and could he please do something about it? Now, seriously, I wonder what they expected him to do. Because it's clear at the end of this story that what he actually does is not what they expected him to do. So maybe they expected him to bail water with them but just do it better and faster. Maybe, uh, who knows? Maybe they just thought he'd have a more creative solution because by this point in their history with him, they know there's something special about him, though they don't fully grasp what that is. We don't know what they expected, but what we do know from verse 26 is that they were afraid because they didn't have much faith. In other words, they did not trust him enough to to know that this storm posed no threat to him whatsoever. So Jesus stands up in the boat, and get this, verse 26. He rebukes the wind and the sea. As though they are naughty little children who failed to wash their hands before coming to dinner. As though he is the creator God who tames the watery chaos to bring forth life. Just like the Jewish creation story from the Bible's first chapter. So which part of this is more astounding? 
that Jesus thinks he can handle a storm in this manner with a rebuke or that it actually works. Because at the end of verse 26, there was a great calm. And the men on that boat marvel, and they ask in verse 27 the very question that you and I should ask this morning. What sort of man is this? His word tames the natural world like a golden retriever ready to play fetch for its master. The thing is, if you try to get close to him, you are exposed to such displays of power. You cannot see him calm the storm until he takes you into the storm. And you won't be ready for that until you trust that he can do something in the midst of the storm. Now, if only the natural world was all we had to deal with, how do we know Jesus can forgive sins? The narrative shows that he, uh, the natural world obeys him, but not only that, secondly, the supernatural world obeys him. This is the next scene in verses 28 to 34. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. In this second story, we learn that the supernatural world obeys Jesus. When Jesus lands at the other side of the sea in verse 28, he's immediately accosted by two demon-possessed men. We're told that they are fierce men. They are so fierce, verse 28, that no one could pass that way. Will Jesus be able to pass that way? Strangely, Jesus has a little chat with these demons. Well, they have a little chat with him. He doesn't appear all that talkative in this story. But they are sorely distressed. They know on sight who he is, and they call him out. Verse 29, the Son of God. You see, they know that a time will come when the Son of God must torment them. But they don't think that time has arrived yet. They're supposed to have some liberty yet. But if he's going to make them do something, they beg him, verse 31, to send him into the nearby herd of pigs. Now, 
it's pretty common for people to read a story like this and try to discern the real story behind the story. You can go up to the campus religion department where they will explain the whole thing to you. You see, ancient people hadn't discovered psychology yet, so they didn't understand the ins and outs of mental health conditions. So when people saw someone with personality or identity disorders, the only thing they could attribute it to was an interpretive construct such as demonic possession. But we know today that such things are merely well-intentioned and creative inventions. That's what you may hear among academic theologians. And sometimes students or even preachers want to be followers of Jesus and also garner the respect of contemporary scholarship. But that creates a real moral dilemma in a text like this. Because Jesus claims in the next story that we're going to get to in just a few minutes, he claims to speak with the authority of God. And the main idea here is whether Jesus really has the authority that he claims to have. So if he spoke with the authority of God, and you want to hold that true, and you want to believe that these two demon-possessed guys, these two fierce guys, were not truly possessed by demons then when Jesus speaks to the demons that presumably aren't really demons, either God doesn't know when a demon is not a demon, or he's lying to everybody about it. You you see, the main question isn't whether supernatural beings such as demons exist. The main question, the most important question, is whether Jesus is who he says he is. Because if he is, that makes the question of demons a heck of a lot easier. They must, there must truly exist supernatural creatures called demons. So if we let this text speak for itself and not through the lens of our modern biases and presumptions, this text is telling us that Jesus did something to really mess up these supernatural beings. In verse 32, they go into the swine, and they expeditiously hurl themselves off the cliff and into the sea, those swine do, thus wrecking all the demons' hopes and dreams. What's happening here is that the invisible, supernatural realm is being made visible for a time. The Bible teaches that there is a war in heaven between the Son of God and Satan. And this passage shows how that war had made its way to the earth. And what Jesus is doing here, exercising authority over demons, has dramatic ramifications for both earthly and heavenly realities. It shows that Jesus gets to decide who can stand before him. He decides where they are allowed to dwell. And he decides who gets kicked out and removed from his presence. 
So what is it that Jesus does here? I said earlier that he's not very talkative with the demons, but what is his strategy for spiritual warfare? One word. Did you see it? Verse 32. Go. That's all it takes for him. (laughs) You need to know that earlier in chapter 8, before the part that I read, Jesus has a conversation with a military man who fully understands how authority works. In verse 9 of chapter 8, that Roman officer says to Jesus, I say to one soldier, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And now, the same sort of authority the Roman officer exerts over his own soldiers, Jesus now exerts over his enemies' soldiers. Supernatural, demonic soldiers, or as they are labeled in Ephesians chapter 6, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. With one word, Jesus orders them around and topples their fortress. What sort of man is this? Consider well your answer to that question. Because Jesus must be reckoned with. In verse 34, the townspeople have now lost, some of them at least, have now lost their livelihood when their pigs did the reverse pike position into the sea. And those townspeople beg Jesus To leave them alone. Isn't that interesting? The demon-possessed men were so fierce that nobody could pass that way. Now Jesus has made it so that they can pass through to get to him. Proving himself immeasurably superior to the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these people want him to leave. Isn't that just like you and me more often than we'd like to admit? When I get a front row seat to observe Jesus' superior power in the battle against spiritual, supernatural forces, it's usually when I have lost much. My herd of pigs has hurled itself off the cliff. My name has become mud. People who were once my friends grow hostile and tell the world horrific half-truths about me or my ministry. Just give one example of when I've lost my herd of pigs. What about you? Maybe you have lost much from COVID, either the result of shutdowns or continuing symptoms of long COVID in your household. Maybe your funding fell through. Maybe your research hits a setback. Maybe the stock market crashes. Maybe you lose some financial security. When Jesus wages war against supernatural forces, people 
get caught in the crossfire. And they lose their herds of pigs into the watery depths. Friends, in those moments, when you most wish Jesus would just go away and leave you alone so that you can smile again, he is showing you his mighty power, his unmatched authority. And this is not the time to run from him or to beg him to leave. He's reminding you of why he has the authority to forgive sins. The natural world obeys him even if it terrifies you to be there to witness it. And the supernatural world obeys him even if it means you lose everything you hold dear. Jesus has all authority. But all of that is for a reason. He has a very good purpose, which is that you may know he can forgive sins. He can forgive, third and finally, because God has authorized him. We move into chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The previous two stories were building up to this climactic episode where we learn that God has authorized Jesus to forgive sins. That's the point of this brief story where some people bring a paralyzed friend of theirs to Jesus. And in verse 2, Jesus sees them and their great faith. Not like his own disciples during the storm. And Jesus speaks yet again, not a word of rebuke like he did to the sea, not a word of go like he did to the demons. No, his word this time in verse 2 is, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It's a crazy moment. And then the room is like, seriously? Seriously? Nobody wants to say anything out loud, but they're thinking, what are you talking about? I mean, just so you know, when some people bring to Jesus a paralyzed man on a bed... 
It's pretty self-evident what they want him to do. And it's not to lecture them about theology. They just want their guy to get his legs back. And so the, the theological experts in the room understand fully what this means when Jesus declares his sins forgiven. In verse 3, they understand that Isaiah told us that God is the one who forgives the sins of Israel. So we know exactly what sort of man this is. He's blaspheming. This man is pretending to do something that only God can do. That is blasphemy. Jesus knows their thoughts of course verse 4 he has all authority none of this is hidden from him and he knows also that they can't see the dude's sins forgiven it's not like sins are acne and here's some forgiveness cream to smooth out that skin and we can produce before and after photos to prove that it worked no you can't see Sins being forgiven. It's an invisible reality. So to prove that he has all authority to do what he just claimed to do. He gives them something at the end of verse 6 that they can see. Get up and go home. And just as quickly as the greatest storm grew calm. And just as quickly as those demons rushed from the men into the pigs, in verse 7, this gentleman rises on new legs and he gives himself a ride home. Maybe for the first time in his life. In verse 8, everybody sees it and they're real scared. But it's a fear that's filled with praise. For the God who gave authority to forgive sins to men. Specifically, to this man. God has authorized this man to forgive sins. And now everyone can see it as Mr. Can't Walk gets up and walks out the door. Everything in these three stories has been building up to this moment. Friends, if the storm scene is fiction and the demon scene is fable, then this scene must be a myth as well. Because if Jesus does not have all authority, then there is no reason to trust that he can do anything about our sins either. And all you've got left to hope in is your own strength and elbow grease to take care of your sins. Let me illustrate. When I was eight years old, I prayed a prayer asking Jesus to forgive my sins. And I was told that I became a Christian that day. However, a year later, I prayed that prayer again. Because I wasn't sure whether it had worked the first time. And for quite a few years I did it again. And again. And again. You see I hoped that my sins were forgiven. But it never really seemed to me like they really were forgiven. Can you relate? Children, do you ever have doubts about whether Jesus has really forgiven your sins. 
Adults, have you had those occasional moments of sober-mindedness when you're acutely aware of how far you've fallen, of how unworthy you are, of how much farther you still have to go in wrestling your sin to death, of how disappointing you must be to your God? And could there be some of you here today who aren't yet convinced that you have sins that need forgiving? You might concede that nobody's perfect, of course, but you have done your best to be the best person you can be with few regrets. If that is you, I'm so grateful that you've come to join us this morning. You are very welcome here. I would love to speak more with you after the service about what sin is and why it matters so much to God. But for now, because of the time I have, I ask only that you consider those places where you have felt the weight of poor choices, whether your own choices or somebody else's choices. Where have you felt the weight of poor choices? Because wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus really did have all authority and could actually do something about that? Because friends, all of you, when we get a good look at Jesus here in the Bible, we see that the natural world obeys him. And the supernatural world obeys him. And all of this verifies that Jesus is who he says he is. This means that he can do what he says he will do. It means that God the Father has authorized him to forgive sins. Take heart, my son. Take heart, my daughter. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus didn't rely only on a single storm or a demonic bacon bath to demonstrate his authority. No, by the end of this book of Matthew, both the natural and supernatural worlds will obey him yet again. On the day that Jesus dies, as Matthew narrates it, the natural world is shaken to the point that rocks split and tombs bust open and dead people start walking around again and visiting their friends in Jerusalem. And three days later, as Matthew tells the story, a second earthquake hits and heaven, the supernatural world, shakes loose a supernatural being called an angel who descends to roll back the stone covering the tomb of the Son of God because Jesus gets his legs back and gives himself a ride home. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus has all authority... He can forgive sins. His resurrection from the dead was the fullest expression of God the Father's complete authorization of him to rule the world. So a short time after his rising, he roars across time and space. 
with the words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Friends, the Lord Jesus claims with all authority to forgive sins. He rose from the dead to prove that it is so. Do you think you can trust him, however costly it may be? You may be terrified and undone. You may get caught in the crossfire of the spiritual battle. You might lose everything. But your sins might just get forgiven. Because if Jesus has all authority, then his words are neither delusional nor empty boasting. If Jesus has all authority, he can forgive sins. Trust him today. And you can know that even your sins will be forgiven. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus your authorized representative to exercise your authority over the natural world and the supernatural world and especially the one authorized to forgive sins. Please hear us for we confess that we are sinners. We need you. We have harmed one another. We have made ungodly, foolish even at times wicked choices. We have damaged ourselves and others. Please hear us and forgive and grant us the faith to trust that it is so, that you, Jesus, are Lord of heaven and earth. Thank you for dying and for rising from the dead. You are the one with all authority. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.